0: Queer Right Sessions, QWS Podcast, in partnership with Blarney Books and Art in Port Ferry. I'm your host, Rob, aka RWR MacDonald. And I'm Jonathan Butler, and this is a Words and Nerds spin-off series. Thanks, Danny. We're coming to you from the lands of the Wurundjeri people, and I would like to pay my respects to their elders, past and present. Each month, QWS Podcast will bring you reviews, shout outs of LGBTQIA writers, and feature an interview with a queer writer from our rainbow communities. And now on with the show. Hello, my name is Jonathan Butler. My pronouns are he, him, and it's my absolute pleasure to introduce Anna Kate Blair to the Queer Write Sessions podcast. Welcome, Anna. Hello, thank you for having me. No problems. Anna's a writer from Aotearoa living in Naam, Melbourne. Anna writes fiction, non-fiction and occasionally poetry, most of which explores art, architecture and place. She holds a PhD in history of art and architecture from the University of Cambridge and has previously worked in the Department of Architecture and Design at the Museum of Modern Art in New York. Her first novel, The Modern, was published by Scribner in September 2023. The opening question that we ask all our QWS podcast guests is... How has your work influenced your identity?
1: I think in some ways it's provided more space for nuance within identity in that writing is, you know, often about finding new ways to say things or um, not necessarily just kind of going for like the quickest, easiest way of explaining something um, but rather kind of opening up new spaces and um allowing kind of space for questioning. <laughs> I think often sometimes I'm not very good at articulating my own identity. And I mean part of this is partially something I kind of explore in my book, except my character is even worse at it than I am. Um, but I think when I was younger there was just this kind of like resentment of the fact that like people would presume I was straight if I hadn't made some like coming out kind of announcement. Um, and I think in some ways writing like provides a space to kind of explore the nuances of one's identity without making some kind of like grand announcement. Um, like I do think, I think I sort of, I think I more or less came out to like my family by writing an essay, which casually mentioned being attracted to women and then them read it, um, but not intentionally.
0: Let's start talking about your debut book, The Modern. Uh, For those who haven't read it, I'll quickly read an abbreviated version of the blurb. Um, So it's about, it's set in the pristine, precarious world of MoMA. The Modern is a brilliantly wry and insightful debut about art, sexuality, commitment, and whether being on the right path can lead to the wrong place. Things seem to be working out for Sophia in New York, having come from Australia to be at the centre of modernity. She's working at the Museum of Modern Art and living in a great apartment with a boyfriend. They unexpectedly become engaged just before she he leaves to hike the Appalachian Trail, leaving Sophia alone in the city to wonder what it means to be married in the 21st century. In a bridal shop, she meets Kara, a young artist struggling to get over her ex-girlfriend and the 2 begin connection that leads Sophia to question the nature of her relationships, her career, and the consequences of being modern. Now, The Modern is set in 2016, which I'm not sure if it quite qualifies as a historical fiction just yet, but it's obviously a very specific and significant choice that you made. Um, it was the year that uh, Donald Trump had his successful campaign to become President of the US. Um, there was the tragic uh, 2016 Pulse nightclub shooting in US as well and the queer nightclub. Um, and it was sort of just before equal marriage in Australia and, you know, that sort of dope debates and rallies and, um, you know, questions and conversations about that were happening. So how did the year shape Sophia as a character?
1: Um, well, I think some of some of what you have mentioned here um, influenced it in terms of I wanted the book to be set at a point where if she were still living in Australia, she wouldn't be able to get um, married, and or wouldn't be able to get married to a woman, <laughs> I should say. Um, but um, yeah, and then some of kind of the other events that are going on, um, like the nightclub shooting and like Trump's campaign do kind of appear in the book. I mean, I think part of setting it in 2016 was about those events. And part of it was kind of about this sort of sense of, um, I don't know, I feel like everyone in 2016, before Trump was elected, or at least everyone in New York had this very kind of rosy view of the world and it was only kind of when Trump was elected that um, people kind of realized that actually you know they were able to view romanticize their existences in these ways because they were living kind of their sort of sheltered New York existence and you know to a lot of people particularly people of color like it wasn't a surprise at all that Trump was elected whereas to most people in the Manhattan art world, it was not something people, not something that had been expected. Um, so I think that in some ways shapes the way Sophia's character appears in the book, in that if if the book was set after um, Trump was elected, I think she would be viewing her own life in very different terms. Like being queer wouldn't just be kind of about... Her own sort of personal identity it would be i think it would feel to her and i mean it still isn't purely about her own personal identity but i think i think her political commitments would shift like it would force it would have forced more of a kind of reckoning in terms of not just what will make her happy but in terms of like what kind of responsibilities does she have to like the broader queer community um which i think i think is something that Maybe the book touches on a little bit, but she is a very kind of solipsistic character. <laughs> um, she's very focused on how she appears.
0: Love to hear more about Sophia's sexuality. So she's a queer woman, um, but she's in a heterosexual relationship, which comes with a few complexities. Um, could you talk a little bit about Sophia's sexuality for us?
1: Yeah, so she's she's bisexual but she's in a relationship that reads as heterosexual and um she's had relationships or at least one relationship with a woman prior to um the relationship that she's in but she's been in um this relationship for quite a long time um and when she moved to the US she kind of had an expectation that she would date women sort of more openly there but then she met um this man and fell in love with him and sort of was only really thinking about the present and not about the future. Um, and then the book kind of, because he proposes to her, sort of forces her to think about her relationship not just in terms of the present moment, but um, what it might mean in a more long-term way. Um, and I think, I think in terms of what that. What that relationship sort of means to her she's very she's very caught on how um how she appears to the world um i guess because she's an art historian um she's very concerned with what is seen and what isn't seen and the way people interpret what they see um and often they interpret it quite lazily um like they don't kind of they don't consider anything beyond the fact that she's in a relationship with a man and um And that bothers her quite a lot, but she seems to view the problem as concentrated in the sort of question of who she is dating or sleeping with, Um, whereas in actuality probably she'd be happier if she thought about it in terms of, like, broader community and, like, ways to engage with the queer community beyond, like, what relationship.
0: Um, So she is engaged, as you've mentioned, but it's not the only relationship that Sophia has and that um, features in the book. Um, How do you or or Sophia um, think about marriage compared to all these other types of relationships that feature in the book?
1: Um, So in terms of how Sophia thinks about it, I think she, I mean, she sees it as this, and I guess I see it too, as the sort of point where the political and the aesthetic come together in that, um, you know, marriage has like, I mean, it's it's so tied up with, um, like, the politics of gender and sexuality, but it's also kind of something that's very, very highly aestheticized in terms of, like, you have, like, wedding dresses, flowers. Um, it's meant to be quite beautiful. And so is drawn to the kind of aesthetic element of it um, but isn't really comfortable with the, politics of it, particularly at a point when, um, like, queer people in Australia couldn't get married, um, and queer people in lots of places um, couldn't get married, um, but, and still can't in lots of places, but um, she, she's also very kind of influenced by the fact that when she was an undergraduate, the response to that was to kind of reject marriage to sort of say, well, we can't get married, but we don't want to get married anyway because marriage is um, like this institution that has all sorts of problems. So we reject marriage. Um, And that's kind of the mind frame she's sort of come of age in. Um, So that does sort of shape um, the way she sees marriage. But at the same time, marriage for her does would be convenient in that she doesn't have a visa to stay in the US. And so she's always going to be dependent on either work or a relationship to to stay in the country that she wants to live
0: in and i found it interesting that you know obviously the the question of marriage really impacted her relationship with her boyfriend obviously but you know there's lots of other relationships so there's there's kara there's um colleagues that you know the setting of these relationships really shaped them there's sort of a, almost a romanticism in some of the friendships that she has as well Um, But, yeah, and the exes and, uh, yeah, I just found it interesting that, like, the idea of marriage was so imposed on her idea of relationships probably, would you say, beyond just her boyfriend or was it sort of contained to her fiancé?
1: Well, I think because her fiancé has just proposed to her, she's trying to think about marriage more broadly. So because of that she's thinking about, like, what it would be like to be married to different people and whether her view on marriage would change if it was, you know, someone she had a crush on who was a woman versus like her long-term boyfriend. Um, But I think that's because the issue of marriage has just been brought up for her. Like the way I kind of see it is prior to the book opening, like marriage is not something she spends a lot of time thinking about. But because she's a person who likes to think about everything before she does it, when somebody proposes to her, she really feels like she needs to kind of think through and come to terms with like what marriage might mean um before she goes ahead with it and because of that she she has to think about it in a wider framework than just her partner because like marriage is kind of this coming together of you know one's personal relationship but also the broader kind of political and cultural meaning of um of a particular institution. And so she she doesn't want it to just be a decision that's about her relationship. She wants it to be a decision that's about her, kind of, her politics and her relationship with her sexuality and the broader world.
0: I once um, read a book uh, that talked about friendships um, and how they can help us develop, um, you know, through different mechanisms, whether it's safety or finding familiarity or similarity between us and our friends, challenging us cheering us along support that sort of thing but one of the ideas of friendship was um mystical kinship which is this idea that we can actually be friends with sort of dead artists or thinkers that we that can really change our lives um do you think Sophia has a kind of mystic friendship with the abstract painter Grace Hardigan? and maybe it's worth for listeners giving us a quick overview of who Grace is
1: oh I I love that idea of mystical kinship um so in terms of first giving an overview of who Grace Hardigan is, Grace Hardigan was an abstract um, expressionist painter um, working primarily and then well I mean she was working for a long time but she's best known for her work in the 1950s when she was living in New York and she was part of the kind of downtown um, art scene um, and she's Um, Her best-known painting is called Grand Street Brides and it's this sort of haunting image of a bunch of either women or mannequins, it's ambiguous, sort of dressed in kind of either sort of bridal dresses or party dresses and, um, yeah, there's sort of something carnivalesque and um, strange about it. It's a very compelling painting. Um, And, um, yeah, and she had... uh, wanted to be a painter and essentially like left her first marriage and her child in order to pursue painting. Um, she subsequently got married I think two more times maybe. I, I can't quite remember, but, um, but she also had a number of other relationships with people who she didn't marry, which in a lot of cases were more significant, Um, she's also well known for her friendship with the poet Frank O'Hara, who's also sort of a big presence in the book and who worked at MoMA, Um, and in some ways for Grace Hartigan, like at least in how she's sort of viewed in the sort of broader world, um, that friendship with Frank O'Hara is probably more defining than any of her romantic relationships. Um, Yeah, in terms of whether Sophia views her own relationship with grace hardigan who's the artist she wrote her phd on um in the same in that sort of mystical kinship realm um i don't think she does but i would i would like it if she did because i think i think one of the problems with sophia is she doesn't um she could do with more friends and she could do with approaching (laughs) people more as friends um um, rather than through either the frameworks of like romantic relationships um kind of projection of family issues or um like work related kind of friendships um and I think the way she approaches Grace hardigan is very much and I don't think she realizes this which is why it's sort of not it's not really made explicit in the book but I think if you if you pay attention I think you can pick up on it but um for her, I think her relationship to Grace Hardigan is much more a, a matter of like figuring out her own family dynamics in that her mother um, sort of left the family when she was quite young. And I think like I think Sophia doesn't really she doesn't really want to think about her own life, but I think perhaps a kind of unconscious way of working through her own sort of childhood issues is to choose a painter who also left her child when that child was quite young in order to go to the city and paint, which is in some ways sort of the celebration of Grace Hartigan as a painter, despite the fact she abandoned her child, Um, could be a kind of like way of coming to terms with like her mother having abandoned her in that she's sort of saying like, oh, there are reasons to abandon children, but she's also trying to kind of become close to someone who's done that through the act of studying their work.
0: I I read that um, you're inspired by modern novels, um, writing the modern, Um, but I guess I want to ask, because the fundamental idea of modernism is that rationality and, you know, approaching things very rationally, but the modern is so attuned to Sophia's emotional state. So, yeah, I'd love to hear um, how you sort of tackled that idea of emotion versus rationality in modernism as well as in the modern
1: yeah, well, I think um, I think the thing is for Sophia as somebody who's studied um, modernism and is very kind of formed by that, um, she's like she thinks she's more rational than she is. Like she's always trying to come up with thoughts that explain her behavior, but rather than it being that she's behaving in a rational way, it's rather that she's rationalizing away behaving in emotion in an emotional way. Um, and I think for her, she's kind of in some ways, like very, very intellectually um, astute, but not emotionally astute at all. And in some ways, I think that is a criticism that can be sort of lobbed at the whole kind of modernist project, that it's this overemphasis of the rational um, and of kind of classification. And um, so in a way I wanted her as a character to kind of reflect that problem um within modernism. Um and sorry, sorry, I've forgotten the the phrasing you used for the yeah. question.
0: Well, it was more as well that the um the book is written in a modernist style as well. Um, and yeah, I was curious about but the experience of reading it was very sort of interior emotional feelings. Um so yeah, I was does that fit does that or does that contradict the style? Um, I haven't read many modernist books, to be honest, but, yeah, I'm curious to see if that affected the writing of it at all.
1: It definitely did affect the writing of it. Um, but I think there's also another thing that's interesting about kind of modernism is there is this kind of disconnect between theory and practice in that often the theory of modernism is about rationality and sort of stripping things down to their essentials and being logical about everything, but then the art that was produced by modernist artists, artists both writers and art and visual artists, is often much more emotional um, than than the theory that's being produced at the same time. Um, which is something I find quite interesting. And within the kind within the sort of books that influenced me, I was particularly influenced by um the novels that were written by journalists in the 1950s, um, in which it was kind of like journalists and critics, um, like Renata Adler, Elizabeth Hardwick. Um, and often it was this kind of, I think this way of like breaking out of the sort of modern theoretical emphasis on the rational by creating something more more emotional. But um, yeah, it's an interesting it's an interesting sort of thing within within modern theory that or not within modern theory, within modernity or as a kind of project that the theory is so so there's so much emphasis on rationality on the theoretical side, but then um, on the creative side there's sort of this breakaway from rationality, which also I think mirrors this kind of binary between the ideas of the city and the wilderness that um, I sort of tried to explore in the book in that um, Sophia's partner, Robert, is um, hiking the Appalachian Trail and she's in New York. And New York is often talked about as this very rational city, like it's designed on a grid, um, like the buildings are often created with these very rational kind of frameworks behind them in terms of things like curtain walls, in terms of things like stepping back from the street, like minimal use of materials, Um, whereas the Appalachian Trail is often kind of theorised as this escape from the city and as wilderness. But in reality, like, the city has its own kind of chaotic aspects and the Appalachian Trail is, like, literally a path. So in some ways it is much more orderly and sequential than the idea of it as wilderness would like, have you believe. Um, and I think maybe that's something I find interesting, the way in which like these theories of how the world is, um, and particularly those modern theories of how the world is, um, don't actually map on the world, onto the world as, as the world is experienced um, in all cases. Um, yeah, which I find fascinating, but, um,
0: I did want to talk a bit about New York as well. Obviously that's the setting of the book and, um, I was, uh, I saw a video online and they were talking about the um, UN uh, sort of headquarters and when that was built and how, you know, did that in the, in the 50s and did that sort of position New York as the capital of the world. And um, obviously it's been the backdrop of so many stories, uh, you know, in the past from, you know, great novels to, you know, Sex and the City as well. Um, do, you, do you think that New York's star is still shining today?
1: Um, I mean, I do, but also I would disagree with the idea that the UN headquarters was kind of the point at which things shifted. I think rather it was like Paris, I think, was kind of the sort of cultural capital of the world in the interwar period. And then um, so many uh, like artists, writers, thinkers from Paris um, with World War II moved across to New York and, um, I think that's when it shifted, I think, like, around the time of, like, the 1939 World's Fair was kind of the beginning of that shift. I mean, yeah. Anyway, sorry, that's just my, <laughs> um, that, that's a bit of an aside because I like thinking Do you about- think that
0: maybe, well, I guess my point was more like they, like, maybe they, like, want to think of themselves as that, like, maybe, like, not not the reality of what actually happened but, like, as an emblem of it being the capital of the world.
1: Um, I mean, I think at that point it kind of was the capital of the world. Um, mm. I mean, I think I mean, I think in a lot of ways, the world is like decentralized now to a greater degree. Like probably the internet is the capital of the world today. <laughs> right, yeah yeah. <laughs> But um, I do think in the '50s, New York was, um, well, at least culturally, was kind of the capital. Of the Western Hemisphere. Um, and I mean, I think in part today that continues to sort of draw people with this sort of nostalgia. Like I think, I think New York is in many ways this kind of nostalgic city That, but a kind of nostalgia for modernity. Um, but then at the same time in the 50s, people were kind of looking back to um like the Bellapoque and like the beginning of the century nostalgically. And at that point, they were looking back to sort of the 19th century. So
0: I do want to ask about uh, your experience writing the book as well. Um, I'm currently reading a 1960s edition of Brideshead Revisited. And it's really interesting. So it's a little bit in the start of the book about how he felt like he was very, um, he wrote the book during World War II and the book was really shaped by his mindset at the time because there wasn't a lot of food. So he wrote these scenes with like lots and lots of food and drink and then when he read it again in the 60s, he actually wanted to edit that back and change it a bit. But So it just kind of made me wonder, you know, like what are those elements that are impacting our state of mind and therefore our book because obviously it's set in 2016. It was released in the 2020s, you know, using ideas and featuring people from, you know, mid-century. Um yeah, is there do you think anything sort of um your state of mind while writing the book impacted it at all?
1: Yeah, I mean definitely. I think, I mean, I, I think the book has a kind of elegiac tone. I hope it has an elegiac tone, um, which I think in some ways is similar to like Brad's had revisited in those books from the 1920s this sort of attempt at memorializing like the recent past um uh yeah and capturing the way in which everything's sort of fleeting um in terms of how the writing of it shaped that i mean i think part of it was it's a book about like precarity in a lot of ways and while i wrote it i was kind of i don't know like i mean like i, I I was sort of applying for jobs and often not getting them. I didn't really know like what continent I lived on. Like I I think I I started it in the UK and I lived in, since the time I started it, I think I've lived in, I don't know, like eight different apartments or something. Right. I wrote a lot of it while like sleeping on a fold-out chair and um, a bit while like sleeping on an air mattress and um, always kind of like applying for jobs to try to figure out like what the future would look like. Or not always, but during the kind of formative, um, the sort of initial formative stages. And I think um, I think that kind of precarity and uncertainty about the future um, shaped the book in a way that I think I think is like, I like that it's a book about precarity, but like, you know, maybe if I'd been writing it in the sort of ideal circumstances that you hear about of like steady home, steady relationship, etc., like like um, maybe it would have been harder to capture that sense of precarity. So I think that influenced it. And then in the editing stages or not, Editing, finishing, I'm not sure exactly. Um, It was a pandemic. Um, So then while I did have like more security in terms of like where I was living um, and in terms of my job Um, or, well, no, actually I didn't Um, because I was working as a grant writer and like grant writer and a sessional tutor and that's, you know, not the most secure um, sort of form of work. Um, So... But while I had more security in terms of housing, I wasn't in New York. And so I think probably that made the New York aspects like more elegiac. I mean, I I spent a lot of time like looking at my own old photos to try to get like visual details and looking at Google Maps and that sort of thing. Um, And I do think like also so many things closed down or changed in the pandemic. And I think that made me want to kind of capture sure what it was like in 2016 even more or sort of heightened my attachment to like particular details from that time.
0: Maybe when you reread it in 30 or 40 years time as well you'll have uh, (laughs) even even more clarity around what what were those things that shaping while you wrote it as well like um, (laughs) Brideshead Revisited. Um, I, I read in an interview that you did once that um You wanted to write a novel because obviously you've done your PhD, so you're um, familiar with the. you're an academic um, and you, you know, had read a lot of academic pieces, but you liked the idea of a novel because, um, you know, there's sort of more breadth um, of that you can sort of express through a novel as well as it's a bit more of an accessible text than a lot of academic writing can be. How do you think being a historian or academic help and or hinder perhaps um, the process of writing a novel?
1: Um, Well, I think, hmm. I mean, it probably helped in that if you've written like an 80,000 word thesis, you know that it's not that hard to write 80,000 words. Um, So it probably helped in that way. Um, And it also probably helped in that, I kind of had the same theoretical background as Sophia in terms of like understanding the same sort of like theories of um, art and modernism that she would understand. Um, And it probably, I mean, certainly it helps in terms of research skills. Like, you know, you go to graduate school, you learn how to research and then you can sort of apply that to writing a novel. Um, In terms of how it hindered um I mean I think in some ways there are little kind of theoretical things that I sort of put in the book that probably people don't pick up on like I sort of um or like there are interests I have that maybe are not typical for the interests of your general novel reader. so um like I'm very interested in like books that sort of enact the idea of like the provincialism problem which in art history is this idea that if you're from somewhere like Australia or New Zealand in order to kind of be accepted you have to go to Paris, New York or London and it's only once you've been accepted in Paris, New York or London that you'll then be accepted in like your country of origin Um, and I'm interested in kind of the psychological like dimensions of that Um, and I like finding novels that kind of I don't know, explore that. Um, And so I kind of wanted to do that. But then I think because a lot of people wouldn't be aware that that's kind of informing the book, they might just sort of view it as kind of snobby about Australia and New Zealand. But it's more that a character who had sort of come of age studying art history in Australia, like that's the main thing you learn about like the relationship to the rest of the world in Art history, but I'm not sure if I've gone slightly off topic. I can't remember. No, what no, no.
0: Question. No, yeah. Just I'm just curious around that idea that um a novel is accessible. Um, the modern, you know, is a novel very and in the in the fact that it's not you know behind a paywall on a you know academic journal website, it is more accessible, but it is still quite conceptual. So I was just wondering, like, as a historian and academic, like, was there a bit of a tension there around like, well, I want to you know speak to a broader audience and you know and use the language that most people use but ultimately you know that's your background that's your education that are the things you're interested in and if there's a bit of a tension between those two things or not
1: um i mean i think there's maybe more of a tension than i realized when i was writing it like i think um i think while i was writing it i was more thinking um one that there are like limitations in terms of academic um academic formats like I do like what I sort of talked about before in terms of that idea of like theory often being rational and creative work often being more like emotional I do think that's sometimes still an issue in terms of academic work like it is very premised on um a certain way of relating to the world which I think um often does kind of I don't know over rationalize the emotional so I think it was partially about sort of avoiding or kind of trying to break out of that it was also about what you sort of mentioned in terms of paywalls like i remember at one point in my phd i read this really really um beautiful um article in a journal about kind of 19th century like romantic approaches to geography or something and like it sort of occurred to me like i'm reading it because it's relevant to my phd but probably not many people read it and like it was a beautiful article and I sort of thought like even if you produce something that would be interesting to a broader audience, often the fact that it's in an academic journal means people don't know it exists or don't read it unless they have to for work. And I guess I wanted to write something that people were reading like for fun rather than because it was their job to be engaging with it. But, yeah, in terms of the conceptual side of it. I don't think I realized until people started reading my novel that like, I don't know that the expectations that readers have for novels are sometimes different from the sort of aesthetic aims that I have as a writer. And it has been very interesting to sort of see that it's, I've noticed like writers seem to like the novel and academics seem to like the novel and also psychologists and psychoanalysts seem to like the novel. But all of those are fields which are kind of premised on analysis and sort of thinking. I've, I've realised that from, like I enjoy thinking like if a book has a lot, a lot of ideas in it and gives me things to think about, like that's sort of what I want out of a book, whereas I've kind of realised some people don't want that from books. Like they want sort of easy answers or, I don't know, a really entertaining plot or gives more kind of surface-level thrills. Whereas I just, I don't know, I like thinking about the kind of concepts behind everyday life and, yeah, I think until other people started reading the book, I didn't realise that that was sort of not how everybody read.
0: In um, preparation of this interview, I read some of your short form writing um, and something I really loved about it as well as in the modern is that uh, you seem to really commit to a life of art, architecture and even magic beyond it's not something just for entertainment or glamour or diversion, it's, you know, something you really live and embody. Um, how, how do you think that we can bridge these sort of internal dream worlds with reality?
1: Um, I mean, I think by writing in some ways, maybe that would have been a better answer for me to give to your question at the beginning of this podcast. Like I do think writing is a way to kind of reconcile your... Interests or your fascinations with your identity?
0: I guess I was thinking that, you know, some people might think of art as something pretty that they put on the wall, or you might just wander through a gallery and just sort of briefly appreciate it. Whereas the character and, um, you know, in your short writing, short form writing, it's what does that mean? And how does that help with your life? And, you know, it's such a important, crucial element and fundamental, that seriousness, I really appreciate. But yeah, I guess there can be that contradiction between that and reality.
1: Yeah, I mean, in some ways, I think it's disposition as much as anything. Yeah, some people will wander through a gallery and not really find it that interesting and they'll just be thinking, okay, like I want to tick this off the list so I can go and have lunch, whereas some people will wander through and kind of be like, oh, like a brush stroke of green, now I'm going to think about the colour green and all its sort of significance for an hour. And um, But I do think part of it is just kind of not not taking art too seriously. Like I think, I don't know, I think a lot of people are kind of because art is something one generally first encounters through like a class, like school or university or like like there's this idea that it's sort of cerebral and you have to kind of look and see who painted something and when they painted it or what the significance of something is. Um, whereas like, you know, if you went for like a hike You wouldn't be like, oh, I have to stop and identify all the flowers or I need to take my like bird watching guide so I can recognize like the calls of birds. Like it's enough to just kind of like wander around the hill and sort of look at what's in front of you and have a nice time. And I kind of think, I don't, again, maybe this is this thing about this like sort of false binary between like art and nature. But I think, I don't know, I think often people would appreciate art more if they just kind of thought oh I'm just going to wander through the museum at whatever pace I feel like and sort of see what catches my eye but I think a lot of people feel like they need to approach it as if it's like an assignment or something.
0: You're also the um Program and Partnerships Manager at uh, Writers Victoria. Would you like to tell us a little bit about your work there and if there's anyone listening who would love to get involved um, either by, you know, going along to a program or even teaching themselves, if you had any advice for them, that'd be great.
1: Yeah. I mean, Writers Victoria is a lovely place to work. It's really nice. It has a very great ethos as an organization. Yeah. So I'm Program and Partnerships Manager. So I organize all the workshops and events, things like that. And in terms of getting involved, I mean, Writers Victoria is like a membership-based organization. So it is It is the members, so the best way to get involved is by becoming a member. But then beyond that, and I mean, there are lots of different benefits for members. Like um, there's, I don't want to sound too much like a sales pitch for Writers Victoria, but before I started working there, I was a member of Writers Victoria and I got a lot out of it. For people who do want to like get more involved in Writers Victoria, we run a lot of workshops, um, other programs, Uh, they're all listed on our website. The one I'm most excited about at the moment is um, called Learning from Love Poetry with Lucy Van, and it's kind of looking at the history of love poetry. And I I think it will be really wonderful. That's the one I'm, I mean, I'm excited about everything I've programmed, but that's the one I'm really keen to have people sign up for because I think it will be really great. The ways to get involved, I mean, if the workshops are sort of out of your price range, like you can always volunteer if you're a member, like just email me and I'll add you to the volunteer list. And yeah, for those who want to teach, again, just email me. It's good to know about previous teaching experience as well as obviously publications and things like that. But when it comes to publications like I can Google people and they will come up. But what people often do leave out, which isn't as easy to find via Google, is experience teaching or their sort of teaching philosophies or subjects they'd like to teach. Like often a lot of the pictures we get are for subjects that we already have people teaching. So it can be really good if we get pictures for things that like we haven't thought about or we don't have a tutor who's sort of already in that area or
0: And uh, so The Modern was your debut. How was your experience of, you know, publishing and promoting your debut book?
1: It was nice. I mean, I think I was extremely, extremely lucky in that I really don't, I'm not very good with rejection. And I think I held off on sending it to any agents because I was scared of being rejected. And then the first agent I sent it to in Australia, like, liked it and wanted to represent me. Um, And then she did all the submitting to publishers and everything. So, and luckily publishers liked it too, which was also really nice. Um, And it all happened like very, very quickly. Like I think like it was, it was less than a year between like when I sent the, the draft to my agent and when the book was published. So it happened super fast, but yeah, I'm very, very lucky. I think, yeah. It's just a matter of the nature of the book and the tastes of the agent aligned, which I've heard is quite rare. And then, yeah, it was published by Scribner. They've been wonderful. I loved working with everybody um, there. Scribner is an imprint of Simon & Schuster. Everyone at Simon & Schuster is great. Yeah, I mean, the thing I think that sort of, it's interesting because you can, even if you know other writers and um, talk to other writers everyone's experiences are so different that I don't know often it felt really unpredictable like I didn't know what was kind of happening even as it was happening.
0: Pomelo the puppy has been helping (laughs) a lot with promotions as well.
1: Pomelo is a lovely dog my fluffy niece she is my brother's dog um, I'm obsessed with her. I wrote an article about her for The Good Weekend in December. They asked me to like reflect on an aspect of my year that was not related to my book, and so I wrote about my love for my brother's dog. She was more into the book um, when she was slightly younger because she liked chewing and books are chewable, but she's growing up a bit now and she doesn't chew books anymore. I'm trying not to take it personally. <laughs> um but, yeah, she's made me want my own dog.
0: Now we are sort of reached the bookend questions. So I have a handful of questions that we ask all our guests at the closing of our chat. And the first one is what was your hope uh, for the modern when it came out into the world?
1: Oh, I don't think I really kind of dared to have hope. There were certain sort of small-scale hopes I had, like there were particular people who I hoped would read it and hoped would like it and things like that. And a lot of them have, which is which is nice. On a sort of silly level, I hoped it would like be in vogue and it was, which is (laughs) nice. I hoped the booksellers at Paperback would like it and they did, which is nice. And they had me for their like salon event with Jessica Yu, who is like one of my favorite writers. So and Anna McDonald, who's also like brilliant. So Oh, those sort of hopes where I was sort of like, these are the things I like dare to allow myself to hope for actually happened. Um, but for the most part, I think, I don't know. I feel like all a writer ever really hopes for is for the book to do well enough that you get to write a second book. But it's a mystery as to whether it is doing well. No one tells you. So I guess I still don't know. If that's still don't know how it's doing. So.
0: And do you have any sort of practical advice or top tips that you'd want to share with aspiring writers or storytellers that are listening?
1: Um. So my advice is not very practical, but it's basically just not assume that everyone's going to reject you all the time. Because I think for me, like when I was a teenager, like I'd kind of read those little books about like how to be a writer, et cetera. And the books would always be like, don't quit your day job. Like, do something else. Like writing's really hard. And I think because of that, I assumed like I couldn't ever be a writer. Whereas in actuality, like art history, museums, academia are just as hard as writing, but no one ever told me like art history is really hard. So I wasn't kind of scared of trying, but people are always telling people that writing is hard and you'll be rejected all the time. And like, I think they mean it well, like they mean to just kind of prepare people for disappointment. But in actuality, I think it, I think it can scare you off trying. In actuality, like writing's not really much harder than anything else. It's easier than a lot of stuff. Mm, Easier than bookbinding. If you want to be a professional (laughs) bookbinder, that's very hard.
0: Right. (laughs) Um, And we also have a shout out question. So uh, firstly, how can listeners connect with you on social or book events or anything like that? And secondly, um, if you want to give a shout out to any LGBTQI plus artist, books, shows, organisations, social media accounts, that sort of thing as well.
1: The first one, my Instagram account is look Anna. The easiest way to get in touch with me, I do have a website. It has my email address and things like that on it too, but. Most things are on Instagram, really. So I think my Instagram account, which is look, it's Anna. The second half, see, I was thinking about the questions you usually asked. And in my head, I just started thinking, like, book, what books? And as a result, like, when you asked the first question today, I was like, I should have thought about the other questions that they usually ask rather than just thinking, like, which books would I recommend? But in terms of like other queer books I would recommend, there are so many, but the ones I will mention today are uh, You Exist Too Much by Zena Arafat, which is a novel about a Palestinian American girl who is bisexual. And it's kind of like exploring sort of the overlap between like her upbringing as like a Palestinian American and her like identity as like a bisexual woman and her relationships, like as a teenager and young adult. And it's really fun and easy to read. I read it a while ago, but yeah, I feel like it's a good book for everyone to read. And then another book, which I read more recently is Mrs. S by Kay Patrick, which it's set at a boarding school in Britain. And it's essentially about this young Australian alien woman who has a relationship with like the headmaster's wife but I think what kind of really makes it sort of special and interesting is like it explores kind of like being a butch lesbian in a way that those sorts of books often don't like often those books it's just kind of like oh like relationship at a boarding school as opposed to kind of the experience of being like somebody who very obviously reads as a lesbian, like the experience of like, um, and while the character is sort of articulated as a Butch lesbian, there are sometimes like hints that maybe the protagonist like could be non-binary. And so like things like the experience of kind of binding when you're at like a boarding school and things like that. Like I, I think it what I found really exceptional about it was it wasn't just kind of another book about like queer romance in like a pretty pastoral setting. It also kind of went into the specificities of that identity. It's also just really beautifully written and like has some of like the best sex scenes of any books, book I've read in a long time. Like it's an extremely sexy book. I would recommend it. Mrs. S by Kay Patrick.
0: Amazing. And our closing question is, uh, what is your hope for the LGBTIQ you plus communities
1: um i mean i really just hope everyone's happy which seems like you know very simplistic but also like sadly so many people aren't happy and it's so hard for so many people still to like be queer so yeah i just want everyone to be able to be happy or closer to happiness than they are at the moment
0: nice place to end it thank you so much anna for your time Um, and all the best for the rest of the modern and for whatever your next project is thank you
1: please check out our show notes on words and nerds blarney books and art and rwrmcdonald.com for links reviews and the interview transcript until next time this is qws podcast